Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in John chapter 8. I am going to do verses 12 through 20 in this audio. This is where Jesus proclaims himself the light of the world. Most of the passage, however, is taken up with legal wrangling with the Pharisees who are trying to nail Jesus as a false messiah. In our previous audio, we took up the story of the woman caught in adultery in the temple there, which allegedly took place at the same time of this Feast of Tabernacles, the last Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus went to before he was crucified. Of course, many people claim that's not in the scripture, but we are going to assume that somebody wrote it, and it it actually happened. Somebody uh, wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It might not have been John. But at any rate, we talked about that famous story of the woman caught in adultery. And before that, in the previous chapter, Jesus was still at the Feast of Tabernacles. Probably on the eighth day of the feast, at the water-pouring ceremony, he proclaimed that if people would believe in him, they would have rivers of living water flowing out of them. So that was on the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The woman caught in adultery, was, if, it, if it occurred then, was somewhere after that. And now we're probably on the ninth day after the feast, Jesus is back in the temple complex teaching again, and he claims that he is the light of the world. So we'll start with John chapter 8. We're going to go through verse 20. We'll start with John chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, light is one of God's favorite metaphors. I have got scriptures showing that Jesus is light, and I've got other scriptures showing that God is light, and then I've got other scriptures showing that Christians are light. It's everywhere through the scriptures. I'm going to read them for you so that you'll get the full impact. Here's some scriptures showing Jesus as the light of the world, in addition to the one we just read. John 1:4. Life was in him, and that life was the light of men. John 9:5. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John 12:46 I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in darkness so Jesus is light now let's look at scripture showing that God is light 1 John 1:5 Now this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you heard from Jesus and declare to you God is light and there's absolutely no darkness in him perfect metaphor God is light Isaiah 61, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines over you. This is in Isaiah, so it's the glory of Yahweh, shines over you. Isaiah 49, 6, He says, It is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected one of Israel. The servant, of course, is Jesus, the Messiah. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the world. I guess that really should be a scripture showing Jesus is the light, not God the Father, even though it's in the Old Testament. Isaiah 9, 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. And of course, that's also a reference to Jesus as the light. I've got those two verses misplaced. But anyway, now we have scripture showing that Jesus is the light of the world. God is light. And we've got scripture showing that God is light. Now let's look at scripture showing that Christians are light. Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. Jesus said to his listeners that were following him, A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. That was in the Sermon on the Mount. Philippians 2.15, so Paul is speaking, So that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faithless, who are faultless, in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. Yes, we're little points of light, we Christians are. Now, when did Jesus give this statement, I am the light of the world? Well, People don't know exactly because the scripture doesn't say, so people like to speculate. He probably used something physical as an occasion for the metaphor, as Adam Clark and Jameson Foss and Brown say, 
Remember like the water with a Samaritan woman, she's drawing a well, so he talks about uh, water, uh, water, living water that will never run, run out. And after feeding the 5,000, he talked about being the bread of life and so forth. So he used physical things as teaching moments, as we say today. Now here's some options as to what particular physical occasion was Jesus referring to, or physical thing was Jesus referring to. Option number one, the lighting of lamps or torches on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Clark denies that, and I don't think that's it either, because at least there's probably some chronological order here, and we're already past the Feast of Tabernacles. Although time indicators aren't present, just the location in the text makes you tend to think it's not the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. But how about the ninth day of the feast? This is what Adam Clark affirms. He says that on the ninth day, which day they termed the Feast of Joy for the Law, and and on that day they were accustomed to take all the sacred books out of the chest where they had been deposited and put a lighted candle in their place, in allusion to Proverbs 6.23, which says this, For the commandment is a lamp or candle, and the law is life. Or to Psalm 119.105, which says this, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. If this custom existed in the time of our Lord, it is most likely that it is to it he here alludes, as it must have happened about the same time in which these words were spoken. Well, I think that sounds pretty good. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a very reasonable speculation. Jewish ritual, replacing the books of the law with lighted candles on the ninth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, after the the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Here's a third option. This is Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's speculation. There were two colossal golden lampstands in the treasury. Now, we know that this dialogue was spoken in the temple treasury because John 8.20 says this, He spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple complex. So we know it was in the treasury. There were two colossal golden lampstands, and so Jesus just points to them and, or just stands next to them and says, I am the light of the world, even as these two big golden lampstands are lighting up this treasury complex. Now, each of these two golden lampstands, on each of those were hung a multitude of lamps, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out. They were lighted after the evening sacrifice, probably every evening during the Feast of Tabernacles. So there was a lot of light in the court of women there. Well, that's all interesting. Whatever it was, Jesus has already talked about water. He's water, living water. In the previous chapter, John 7, and now he's talking about needs light. He's using simple metaphors that we can all see. He mentions darkness. We will never, anyone who follows Jesus will never walk in the darkness. What is that darkness? Well, it could be the darkness of the world, as the NIV Study Bible suggests. It could be the darkness of Satan, as the NIV Double Study Bible suggests. Or it could be both darkness of the world and the darkness of Satan, which is what I believe it is. It's just darkness, evil. That's an easy metaphor, too. You got God for light and you got the devil for darkness. What could be simpler? Now let's look at this word world. That always occasions a little bit of controversy. I am the light of the world. What does world mean? The word has a lot of different meanings in different places in the scriptures. That's why we always have to examine it. First option, it can mean all the individuals in the world. Now John Gill denies that because not everyone is saved. I am the light of everybody in the world. Well, no, because lots of people in the world are walking in darkness and don't participate in that light. Now, I I could say that Jesus is the light of the world if you import an implied condition that everyone in the world who believes has the light of Jesus. In other words, I'm the light of the world for everyone who believes in me. If you put that implied condition in there for everyone who believes in me, I don't have any problem with doing that. Could be. John Gill says it could be the whole body of the elect. He denies that. 
even though sometimes the elect are called the world, and that's true. I have to look. I checked that out one time. Sometimes the elect actually means the world actually refers to the elect, but I don't think it does here. I am the light of the elect, even though that's true. I don't think that's what Jesus meant. Either does John Gill, and he's a arch Calvinist. It could be the Jews. I am the light of the Jews. Why? The Jews are generally not called the world. It's usually Gentiles that are called the world, so that's probably not it. John Gill denies that. Could the world refer to the Gentiles? I'm the light of the Gentiles. Now, world does a lot of times mean gen, means Gentiles as opposed to Jews. But why would Jesus say that to a bunch of Jews? I'm the light of the world. I'm get, all getting them saved. And meanwhile, you guys go about your business. I don't think so. I think he's talking about everybody in the world who believes. John 8:13. we continue. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. Now we switch from the light of the world to some legal wrangling with the Pharisees when they were complaining that Jesus was testifying about himself, that he was the light of the world. And what they're saying when they said that your testimony is not valid, you're not supposed to testify about yourself. Now, is that true? Well, John Gill says the Pharisees are wrong. A man's testimony about himself is valid. And of course, today, people testify for themselves. That's true. Yeah, just because you testify about yourself, that doesn't mean your testimony is not valid. If I saw, if I can testify that I was at a, a at a, watching a movie when the murder was committed, I can testify that I was at that movie. Now, it would be nice if I had corroborating evidence, but, I, but nonetheless, the jury could believe that if they want to. Testifying about yourself is not invalid. This is what John Gill says, and I agree with him. Jameson Fawcett Brown disagrees and says the Pharisees were right. You can't testify about yourself because of Proverbs 27.2, which says this, Let another praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. Well, that's a proverb. That's not a legal stipulation. It's not a legal regu regulation. Regulation. That's a proverb saying, keep your mouth shut and don't toot your own horn. I wonder if Donald Trump's ever read this verse. <laughs> Probably not. Jamison Fawcett and Brown claim that Jesus is is uh, claiming he was an exception to the general rule that you're not supposed to praise about yourself. I don't think so. I think there's nothing wrong with testifying about yourself. The Pharisees are wrong. Now, let's go to verse 14. Even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is valid because I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you don't know where I came from or where I'm going. Now, we have to make a distinction here. A person's testimony about himself is valid, but it's not demonstrative. Legally demonstrative, you need corroborating testimony. In other words, I testify, that's, that's one t witness, that's fine, but I've got to have another witness, two or three. That's, that's a big distinction important to make. Now, what did he mean my testimony is valid because I know where I came from and where I'm going? Where he came from is heaven. Where he's going is heaven. That shows that he knows he's about to get crucified. So, and of course, the Pharisees didn't know a thing about heaven. Now, when he says that, I know where I came from and where I'm going, why did he bring that up about his, in the context of his testimony being valid or not? Well, I think it's because he was implying that God the Father was testifying with Jesus, which means that now i got another witness. My testimony is valid. On the other hand, what you say is invalid because you don't know anything about the Father. You don't know where I came from, where I'm going. You don't know anything about heaven, nor do you know anything about the Father who lives in heaven. Now, let's take up the question here of why Jesus said his testimony is valid, even though he only, even if he were only testifying about himself. Excuse me, even if he were testifying about himself. This seems contradictory to John 5, verse 31, which says this, Jesus speaking, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. Oh, there's a, 
there's a conflict in the scriptures. Jesus is contradicting himself. The Bible has errors in it, and Jesus is not the Son of God. I can hear the ha-ha-ha-ha skeptics, the pinheaded skeptics laughing now, the pea brains out there who do not even lift a finger to try to explain such apparent contradictions, when obviously John is not stupid. He wrote both of these passages. He would not put down something that would make Jesus blatantly contradict himself. The man who he was claiming with a lot of evidence was the Son of God. He wouldn't do that. So let's see how we reconcile it. Well, now, John Gill says that John 5.31, when Jesus says, when Jesus says his testimony is not valid, that he was speaking as a man. His testimony as a man is not valid. But now that I'm speaking as God in John 8.14, God can speak and my testimony is valid. Well, the problem with that is John is a speculation. Jesus doesn't say he's speaking as a man in five, John 5 and speaking as God in John 8. That's just a speculation, and I don't believe that's a good one in my humble opinion. Now, I've mentioned this one already, that Jesus implies when he says, I know where I'm going, and, and you don't know where I'm going, and I'm going, I know where I came from, and you don't know where I came from, because it's the Father where I'm going to, and he is backing up my testimony. Now, I think that's what Jesus was getting at, and I have a verse to back me up. If we drop down to verse 16, we read this. And if I do judge, my judgment is true, because I am not alone, but I and the Father who sent me judge. So he refers directly to the Father right there in a couple of verses later. So I think that's what he's talking about, that I've got the Father that backs me up. So if you were about two witnesses, there's me and there's my Father, so get over it. That's, that's one way to reconcile it. But here's another good way to reconcile it. Notice that in John 8:14, Jesus never said that his testimony was legally corroborated. In other words, he never said, I got two or three witnesses. He's just saying, my testimony is true. Now remember, you can testify in court. Fine. There's nothing wrong with testifying for yourself. I mean, even when the, Jesus was taken before the kangaroo courts at his resurrection, they, the, 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 the high priest and the, and the Sanhedrin, they asked Jesus to testify about himself. Nothing wrong with doing that. However, in order for it to be established as a legal fact, your true testimony has got to be corroborated by somebody else's true testimony. You've got to have two or three witnesses. That's just a legal procedure. But it doesn't mean that if, you only if one person testifies that your testimony is not true. As I said, I could testify that I was watching a movie at such and such a... I was eating at a restaurant at such and such a place at the exact hour that the murder was committed on the other side of town. That testimony is perfectly true. But it needs to be corroborated, but it doesn't mean it's uncorroborated, but it doesn't mean it's not true. And Jesus can say, okay, he could be saying here, look, my testimony is uncorroborated, but that doesn't mean it's not true, because I know it's true. My testimony is true. I am the light of the world. Let's go further with that argument. Jesus says, even if I testify myself, so he's arguing on the Pharisees' ground. He's making a concessive argument. He says, look, I grant you, I give you the fact that I'm testifying about myself. Okay, for the sake of argument, Let's just say I don't have any other witnesses. I'm testifying only about myself. Well, it doesn't matter. Even though, even if I'm just testifying about myself, my testimony is still valid because I've been to heaven and you haven't. The verses don't contradict liberal Protestants. They don't contradict. Jesus, let me repeat that last argument. Let me just, let me just go through the argument again. Jesus didn't say in John 8:14 his testimony was legally corroborated. He just said, even if my argument is not valid. He just said it was true. A witness can testify in his defense truthfully at court, but to be believed, there would need to be other corroborating evidence. But note that Jesus had plenty of corroborating evidence. He's getting ready to appeal to the Father. He didn't appeal to it here because he was conceding the Pharisees' argument. But even when he said, even if it's true, I am merely testifying for myself, which it isn't true, by the way, 
But even if it were true, I'm still the Messiah. And you guys don't know what you're talking about. So notice the even if at the very first of the, uh, of the verse here. It makes a big difference on how you interpret that. So however you try to reconcile those two verses, they don't contradict. Jesus was not stupid. John was not stupid. Jesus and John's liberal Protestant critics are stupid, but they think they're smart. They got all the chairs of religion and all the big universities like Duke University. They get paid by state money so they can pontificate to their brainwashed little snowflakes sitting in their classes. John 8, 15, 16. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. This is Jesus continuing talking to the Pharisees. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true. Because I am not alone, but I and the Father who sent me judge together. So here you go. He says, I am not alone. I got another witness here. So let's get off. I'm, I'm not conceding anymore to you that I don't have another witness. Now I'm going to tell you I've got another witness, and he's God the Father, the maker of the universe. Now, he says, you judge by human standards. You Pharisees judge by human standards. What does that mean? Well, it could mean according to their ridiculous rabbinic laws. It could be the Pharisees were thinking the Messiah would be a worldly temporal prince, and they judged Jesus by that standard and said, you don't look like a temporal, worldly, temp a worldly political Messiah riding on a white horse. You look just like a lowly carpenter. They were judging by human standards. They thought that Jesus was a mere man. They judged by outward appearance, by human standards. Now, Jesus said, I judge no one. Now, you've got to be careful here. Jesus means here, I judge no one by human standards. That's implied in the verse. Verse 15, you judge by human standards. I judge no one, i.e. by human standards. Because Jesus did judge. All we've got to do is go to John 8:26 and read this. I have many things to say and to judge about you. But the one who sent me is true, and when I've heard from him, these things I tell the world. I've got many things to judge about you. He judged the Pharisees constantly. How about John 7:24? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. In other words, by divine standards. So what Jesus is saying here is, I don't judge by mere appearances. And by the way, this is a good application time here. You hear so many times in our screwed up millennial snowflake culture, don't judge me. Don't judge me. Oh, I'm going to get 20 women pregnant this weekend. Don't judge me and don't make me pay for the pregnancies. Don't judge me. Get your hands off my body. That's ridiculous. Jesus judged all the time. And he's going to judge sin. And he's going to judge the world. Now, he did say, I, don't, I didn't come to judge the world because the world was already under judgment. He came to save the world. Yeah, that's his, that's his, his ministry now is to save us from our sin. All of Every person in the world is under the curse of sin and under the wrath of God and is the enemy of God. And his job is to save his elect from that judgment, from that wrath. So there's no need to judge. But to say there's no judgment at all, I can do whatever the heck I want to and nothing's going to happen to me, that's just absolute stupidity. And that, unfortunately, is the way that most people think in the colleges of America and in the culture of America today, in the West. It's ridiculous. But Jesus said in verse 16 in John 8, and if I do judge, my judgment is true. And, of course, he, did, he does judge, as I just pointed out. And when he judges, his judgment is true, as opposed to judging by human standards. His, judge, his judgment is true, is real. Because why? Because I'm not alone, but I am the Father who sent me. And the implication is, I am the Father who sent me judge together. I'm judging with God the Father. So my judgment is true. The judge together is not in the text, but the Holman Christian Study Bible puts it in brackets there. Because that's exactly what Jesus meant. I'm judging with the Father. Now, the one who sent me, Jesus uses that phrase a lot, the Father who sent me. 
Jesus was on a mission from God, if you will. I'd give you one scripture that shows that, John 4:34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. All right, now let's go to John 8, verses 17 through 18. Even in your law, it is, it is written that the witnesses of two men is valid. I am the one who testifies about myself. One witness and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Two witnesses. All right, now he's, got, he's gotten off of the even concession. You know, my, my testimony is true even though it, I don't have two witnesses. Now he's saying I do have two witnesses. All right, let's read that legal requirement of two witnesses in Deuteronomy 17.6. The one condemned to die is to be executed on the testimony of two or three witnesses. No one is to be executed on the testimony of a single witness. And that's obvious why. A single witness could be wrong. A single witness could be biased. A single witness could be suborned, bribed. Deuteronomy 19.15, one witness cannot establish any wrongdoing or sin against a person, whatever that person has done. A fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So this is a clear provision in the law. Let's look at 1 John 5.9, again, to show that the father is a witness to, to his own son. 1 John 5.9, if we accept the testimony of men, God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that, that he has given about his son. In other words, you know, every, the whole world relies on testimony. The whole court system relies on testimony. And so we rely on human testimony all the time. But God's testimony is even greater. He sent his son. Listen to him. Here is my beloved son. Hear him. John 8:19. Then they asked him, where's your father? You keep talking about the father who sent you. Well, where is he? Jesus replies, you know neither me nor my father. Jesus answered, if you knew me, you would also know my father. Why? Because Jesus and the father are one. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know God, you know the Son, you know the Son, you know the Father. John 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. The one who is at the Father's side. All right, so these Pharisees, not recognizing the exalted witness of the Father, they ask him, where's your Father? They asked it in a sneering, taunting, insulting manner, of course, as John Gill points out. Who are they referring to? Where's your father? They could have been referring to Joseph. This is what John Gill suggests. Or it could be, this is my idea, he could be referring to God the Father. What do you, where's your father who sent you? Where's your father that you don't know where he is and you, you're implying that he's in heaven? Where is he? How can, you, how can you know he's in heaven? You don't know anything about God the Father. Or maybe they just didn't know what the heck Jesus was talking about. Jesus kept talking about the Father who sent me, and that's my other witness. And they said, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? That could be option number three. That might very well be it. Let's go to verse 20 and finish this section. He spoke these words, he, Jesus, spoke these words by the treasury, which, of course, was in the court of the women. Had all those trumpets there that took, took the donations. He spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple complex. But no one seized him because his hour had not come. The hour of his crucifixion had not come yet. Notice when they said he, they, no one seized him. They had tried and failed to seize him the day before, as we saw in a previous audio, two audios before, John chapter 7. They had tried to seize him on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles and failed. They were so overawed by Jesus, they couldn't do it. Remember, they, the Jews sent out the temple police, and the temple police came back and said, Hey, nobody's ever spoken like this man. So they tried it again after he said it was the light. Of, well, actually, they didn't try. This time they didn't try. They just said, oh, we can't touch this guy. He's got a big following, and no man's ever spoken words like this before. Jesus was God, folks. Get used to it. I hope you enjoy this audio. In our next audio, we'll 
continue the wrangling of Jesus with the Pharisees. He does so in John 8, verses 21 through 59. I think that's the end of the chapter. That's a lot. I don't know if we'll cover all of it in the next audio, but we'll get started. Hope you listened to that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one.